How does humility help you be a better leader? What are the challenges of running a services business? How is making software like making a movie? These are some of the questions we ask Andrew Kerr, author, speaker, CEO, and managing partner for 40AU, a technology consulting company specializing in custom software development with 100% onshore development teams. Andrew talks about balancing quality and speed in the software development process, where software projects go wrong, why many projects fail, and how a bad rollout can kill the best software on this episode of the Fortune's Path podcast. Andrew, thank you so much for coming. It's great to see you today. Yeah, glad to be here, Tom. Happy St. Patty's Day. Happy St. Patty's Day to you, too. Um, Tell me about the book. I know you you wrote a book called The Humility Imperative. Tell me about sort of how that came about and why you decided to write a book. Yeah, no, thanks. Um, So uh, the book came about, honestly, I've always liked speaking and teaching on different leadership topics. And I had a couple classes that I was doing uh, professionally. And uh, I really had wanted to develop some new material. And, and the place I always sort of got inspiration was, honestly, what, what do I need to work on as a leader? You know, and, and so I started kind of getting interested in this topic of humility, probably from uh, good to great, you know, uh, and, and, and Jim Collins and kind of looking at level five leaders. And then I started looking around for other books and I didn't really see any that touched on the topic. And so I, I kind of dug into it as best I could. I put together a class that I started teaching to some different colleagues. And, and after I taught it a few times, and you know, you have to iterate uh, to, to get the material kind of honed in, somebody said, you know, this is pretty good stuff. If you if you want to speak on it more, you should write the book that goes with it. <laughs> and so I already mm-hmm. had a, you know, about a 90 minute class that was a, a PowerPoint driven. And, and I really liked the idea of, of maybe that, you know, I had the core material for a book there. And just now I needed to, now I needed to, to create the elongated version, if you will, and uh, and certainly it has proven that, that you know, what they said to me on that initial, um, I, I don't even know who it was. So it was a class I was teaching. They said, you know, this is this is interesting stuff. It, it's something you don't hear a lot. And certainly that was where the idea came from. And I, I never intended to sort of be an author. But, um, mm-hmm. but, you know, it certainly has proven true that if you if you have that material, you have that book, it, it gives you the credibility, I think, to go out and, and get more speaking opportunities to be able to share that message. Yeah. So, um you think of yourself as a teacher at all? I do. You know, um, my first job in, in software, people ask me how I got into, mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. IT, what, was actually teaching people how to use software. And mm-hmm. I, I found that I really enjoyed getting up in front of people and, and helping them with their job, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. sort of the essence of consulting and, and figuring out where the pain points are. And and so it's interesting over the different positions and titles that I've had over the years I've always worked teaching into it, even even when mm-hmm. that was not a part of the job description. You know, when I was at HCA, I, I was a director of a team, and we did a lot of learning solutions. That's where you and I mm-hmm. actually met. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I always found ways to teach my own classes. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I, I think it is part and parcel of just who I am. I know I get a lot of energy from it. I love being in front of a, of a crowd, and I love being able to sort of see that reaction to people when, when your material is resonating with them. And mm-hmm. so teaching and being able to, you know, the stuff that I've learned and that I feel is valuable, I think in any profession, if you really are passionate about something, there is this natural bent to want to share it with others. And, mm-hmm. and I actually just enjoy the process, which most people don't, uh, of getting up in front of folks and actually doing the public speaking part. So, Yeah. Um, so talk to me a little bit about your Jim Collins influence, the good to great so that was the, um, I think his concept was that 
<coughs> excuse me, organizations that really outperform as measured by return in the S&P um, uh, do it because they have somebody at the top who has, uh, I'm not going to get the phrase quite right, but it's mm-hmm. like um, kind of rabid commitment and, uh, but also personal humility. Am yeah, I, you're, you're close? really close. Yeah, that's exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I, I think it's worth, and, and I make this point in the class that I teach, because again, Collins was the one who really first pointed me in the direction of humility as, as a leadership yeah. quality. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, essentially they looked at companies in good to great that outperformed the S&P, not by a little mm-hmm. bit, but by three times. Mm-hmm. He told his researchers initially, I don't want you to come back here and tell me that they have better leaders, you know, mm-hmm. that, so, so look at anything but the leaders. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. eventually, you know, they tried to sort of have this bias of let's look at anything but the leaders. But they came back and they said there, are, there is something different about the leaders of these companies that have made this dramatic jump and really greatly outperformed their competitors. Mm-hmm. And they said, OK, well, what was it? And, 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 you know, you touched on it there. He said it's not that they're not ambitious. They actually have incredible drive and ambition, but their ambition is directed on behalf of the organization, on behalf of the cause, if you will, and and that they also balance that ambition with personal humility. And so um, he identified, and I think it's worth kind of looking at the stats again, you know, they only identified 11 leaders over like a 40-year period (laughs) that really had this, this, that balance and sort of that, and I started seeing it in other contexts. You know, I read a book. Uh, that was about survival. And, and they talked about Navy SEALs and, and you know, having this extreme balance of boldness and humility. And so what I think is the trick is to tell people humility is not weakness, right? But this is something that has to be balanced, you know? So you have to be confident. You have to lead from a place of confidence and boldness in many cases, right? But it has to be balanced with humility that you don't know how the, how the market, how your customer base, how the maybe shifting and changing. And so there's always more to learn. And so those are the very best kind of level five leaders. And what I think was interesting and sort of counterintuitive about his point was that these aren't typically the charismatic leaders that we look for, that, that, that are sort of brash and just all narcissism and confidence. And, you know, it can really go bad in the wrong direction. And so the humility is kind of that nice. I always thought about it as sort of the antidote to some of these toxic, you know, toxicity that leadership can, can you know, kind of seep into people when, when they feel like they're untouchable, mm-hmm. they feel like they've, you know, arrived at the mountaintop. How many um, leaders in your own career, your own life, do you think you've encountered who have that combination of humility and drive? Uh, just a few, you know, just mm-hmm. a few, and they, and they stick out, you know, in, in my brain. And that was, mm-hmm. you know, there were people, um, and again, um, I think the confidence part and the, you know, there's lots of leadership classes on executive presence. There's lots of mm-hmm. leadership mm-hmm. classes these days on branding yourself. And, and it's the image part. It's the fake it till you make it that everybody likes to sell and talk about and write books on, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's plenty of those out there. Um, it, it's really um, interesting and different to see somebody in a leadership role who's, who's quiet, you know, who, who sits back and lets their team engage. And then only then at the end, maybe jumps in, you know, um, somebody who sits there and says, hey, I've had a lot of success, but I don't feel like I'm successful. I want to keep pushing ahead and keep learning, you know, and, and those are the ones that have made probably the biggest impression on me. And that's why you know, I kind of looked to folks like that, and that was where some of the the curiosity of the book came from. How do you keep yourself humble? Um, I just tell people there's, there's you know the, the easy answer is you, you can either play golf or just have kids because you know you can't, <laughs> you know, I mean your your kids uh, you know just mm-hmm. being real they don't they don't care what your job is most of the time you know they they're not gonna 
they're not impressed that you, that you uh, you know had a meeting today and really killed it or made a big sale. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they want to know you and they want your time just as much as anybody. And so I think you know those are those are the quick and easy answers. I think um, right. what I tell people in part of the course is. You know, when you look at something like Strengths Finder, right? Mm-hmm. One of the best-selling leadership books of the last twenty years has this great formula, and it has all it lays out these quadrants of of skills for leaders, and humility is nowhere on any of those quadrants. And so, if if we don't even have humility as something we're aspiring to and being aware of as leaders, and walk towards it with some intention, then mm-hmm. then you're probably you're you're probably going to be one of those folks who can get off track pretty easily. And again success can be your biggest enemy because it sort of tells you that you're doing everything right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think Mm -hmm. that just being aware and intentional that humility needs to be a part of that leadership playbook or something that you're aspiring to Mm -hmm. is probably the first step. Just, just being aware uh, again, that as a leader, this is something I need to aspire to. And and again, I think being tuned in to those moments when you have a great success, you know, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. in the eyes of the world is that's mm-hmm. when humility is probably most at risk. And so what do you do to kind of walk yourself back a little bit? And, and that's kind of how the way I think about it. So speaking of success, uh, 40AU has gone through some pretty rapid growth. Um, yes. You guys have done. So um, you're a consulting company that builds software for other people. That's right. Um, and um, so what challenges have you encountered over that growth in the last two or three years that have um, – made you rethink your own leadership style or perhaps challenge your humility? Yeah. Um, well, the, the, you know, and, and it's interesting because the great thing about our business is that, you know, uh, essentially you always have to be winning that next deal. You always have to be out there responding to customers, being responsive. Uh, you never sort of get to feel like you've made it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we're not a software company in the traditional sense where we build a product and then mm-hmm. we live off of the margin for years and years into the future. Um, I think business is, is, is um, you know, the, particularly a service business. Uh, I, I like and I think I'm drawn towards service businesses because I have to serve my clients well in order yeah. to continue to be in business and make money, right? So I think this, yeah. this business is probably well suited to that idea of, you know, um, uh, again, it could be a mom and pop web lead that comes in to us and says they need help with their website. Well, I want to respond to that person same day and get a consult with them the next. And we've never changed that ethos. Um, you get lots of advice in the business world as you get bigger to, uh, you know, you don't need any of those small clients anymore. You don't need to work with those those high risk startups. You know, you, you need to be going upstream. You need to go to those secure clients. And, you know, and, and again, I think that's all well and good. That's good advice, certainly from a business strategy perspective. But but one of the ethoses of our culture has been, you know, we want to help in the community. We want to help the mom and pop. We want to help the entrepreneur. And we want to mm-hmm. do big things, certainly at the enterprise level. Right. But, but kind of having that balance and that portfolio to shift across has helped us. You know, certainly it's helped us. You talk about challenges, um, mm-hmm. weathering different economic storms, you know, the, the, the rising interest rates today, uh, COVID two years ago. I mean, there's always something coming at you. And so ha- having this idea of having a diverse portfolio of clients that we can can help and serve in different ways, I think, has is, is been a part of our success. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things in business. Like, I don't think you've ever arrived you know, yeah. you can have a good month, you can have a good quarter, but guess what? <laughs> you yeah. know, the, the pressure is still there to, to keep building. And, and I think for us, it's been just about having a good growth mentality and, and you know, still being, still acting, you know, uh, in some ways, the way we treat clients, like those very humble roots of just, hey, you know, we're happy to have a client. We're happy that somebody reached out to us. We're happy that somebody comes back to us as a repeat client and, and really treating them that way. 
So how do you empower the, um, the teams in the organization, the developers themselves, to be kind of ownership mindset? Yeah, so I mean, I think one of the things that we've tried to do, and and, and you know, we're at, up at upwards of 120 people now, mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. to keep a pretty flat structure. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I, I talk to developers and I, I do a lot of the performance reviews one on one with our developers still, and you know, one of the things I was telling one of our team leads the other day is that the best teams are built when the teammates themselves take pride and ownership of that project, and they're really driving the standard of excellence within that project. It doesn't work. I'm not a developer. It doesn't work for me to come and, you know, uh, chide them or, you know, mm-hmm. scold them because we're behind on a deadline or something like that. It mm-hmm. works when those teammates really stick together and figure out strengths and weaknesses of one another. And, and mm-hmm. again, the pressure, the tension, if you will, to perform is built from within that team, not necessarily from an outside or an external deadline or a client even get mad at them or something like that. So that's the way I kind of think about it as developers, you know, and, you know, the business we're in, it's easy to think of us as hired guns, you know, so we, we're, we're hired to come in and build a project, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I tell our developers, what you really have to do if you want to be successful in any of these projects is you got to care about what the business outcome is. you got to care about the people. you got to get to know their business. And, and if you can dive in at that level and really be, you know, we talk about missionaries versus mercenaries. We want to be the missionaries, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We want to be all in on whatever product we're building. And I think if they get that connection to mission and they get that connection to business outcomes and how they can really move the needle for that client, it helps uh, inspire and empower them to really take ownership of it. Mm-hmm. So your your business does not, have, of software development, <clears throat> particularly software shops, doesn't have the world's best reputation. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, how much of that do you think is earned and how much do you think is just a misunderstanding? Yeah, interesting. Uh, well, you know, we, we always say, I mean, in, in any service business, let, let's talk about the, you know, Comcast or let's talk about, you know, your local uh, GC building, building out kitchens. Mm-hmm. If you can show up on time, be honest with people and give them a fair price, you're, you're ahead of 90% of your competitors right out of the gate. And so in some mm-hmm. ways it's, it's basic and simple. It's not complicated, but you know, the reality in our business is you, you are building very complex you know, products that are really more of a, an art and a science, you know, there is the mm-hmm. science part of the coding, but there is, you know, in many ways, um, people like to compare software development to construction projects, right? I'm mm-hmm. building a house. And so I start with the blueprint and then I have a contractor come in and you know what? Well, we've been building houses, let's just say for thousands of years and, and they still get screwed up all the time, right? Yeah. We've been software for, you know, 60 years ish, you know, somewhere mm-hmm. in there. And, and, and I, I like to liken it more to actually to, uh, you know, maybe, maybe making a movie, you know, because everybody's seen a movie, right? We've all seen mm-hmm. movies. Yeah. And I want to make a movie like that. That's what clients will come to me with. Hey, can you build something like Uber? Well, sure. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. how much do you think went into Uber behind the scenes right. to see the app <clears throat> today? And so when you think about, I think about a movie is starting with a script. But it's mm-hmm. going to evolve a lot and it's going to change when you do the casting and the costumes and the cinematography and you have a budget and nobody comes to a movie you know, uh, executive and says, I need it done by March 3rd. It has to be released <laughs> March 3rd. Like, you know, or, or it doesn't that doesn't really have it's, it's an artistic, creative endeavor that has lots of technical pieces to it. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think people underestimate the effort that it requires to make a quality software product particularly if they haven't done one before. So, and again, that's part of the challenge of working with a client who, who is building their first startup or who is building their first software product. They don't appreciate, you know, a, a little thing like a bug. 
a bug mm-hmm. is just part of the process. And, you know, you're a writer, you've written a book. Mm-hmm. If you write a book, do you expect to write the chapter perfectly on the first, on the first <laughs> time you sit down and put your keys to the keyboard? No, right. there's, there's an editing process that has to happen. There's an iteration process that has to happen to really make good content, whether it be a movie, a book, or a piece of software. And so I think, I think people miss that. And I think that's probably one of the bigger um, that, that we're just building some sort of widget so you can stamp out on an assembly line. It's not true at all. It's more like, I would say, commissioning a piece of art in some mm-hmm. ways. You know, if, I, if I say, hey, Tom, I want to hire you to be my sculptor. I say, I want a picture of, a, I want a sculpture of a man, but I don't, <laughs> you know, you have some, probably some creative license of what that's going right. to end up and what that timeline is going to be. So certainly, uh, like I said, in any service business, to go back to your question, there are, there are bad actors. There are people that don't follow through, people that don't show mm-hmm. up. And, and I think uh, in that case, we've just tried to be the opposite of that, you know, in many ways. Mm-hmm. I think your analogy about um, making a movie is a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, I have one minor correction, which is okay. that studios do actually pick when those things are going to be released. Okay. They, yeah. have, they have release windows about when sure. they want, you know, like Superman 20 has to be out in the summer of, tw- of you know, yeah. 2015 or whatever. Sure. Um, yeah, but they, your your point though is still valid about it's very hard to know when these things are done. I think that's one of the most aggravating parts for business yeah. people when they work with technologists is you say when's it going to be done? Yeah, and the true answer is when it's done. Um, well, and I tell people the true answer is you know if it's a digital product, it ought to live and move and change as your business does. So when, you know it's like asking me when's my business done. Right. Well, I, I, it's not done until I close the doors or you know sell it or something. Right. Right? So mm-hmm. it's like this idea that a, even a website is finished. It certainly can be released to your point, right? But but imagine mm-hmm. um, imagine a movie that you re-released every quarter to make it better. Like you know that that's kind of the analogy, or, or a book. You know that yeah. you know there's different versions of a book, but we we have years in between them typically, right? If you want to mm-hmm. do the up, you know, if your book's successful enough that you do the updated mm-hmm. and expanded edition. Um, you know, a software product could, could literally be released every week. New features can be tested, you know? And so it's a, it's a, it is really a a living, you know, digital product that, 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 that mindset I think is again, very different from what most people would typically think of. Yeah. I, um, I agree with you with there. I think that, um, we even can fall into that trap when we have success in software Yeah, where, um, we'll think about, um, building things without necessarily having the proper amount of research behind them. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, just not understanding the idea that um, good enough and available is a lot better than perfect and and, and non available. And that yeah, that's scary thing. yeah, I mean, I think I think it's scary to release a digital product, whether it's a mobile app or a website, literally to yeah. the world, and and mm-hmm. yet not feel like it 100 percent is finished and represents you as a brand and all that, right? But right, right. You know, that collision with customers early and often when it's in its awkward teenage phase is probably a good thing. (laughs) I think it's definitely a good thing. You know, it's like I was just talking to a uh, product manager from Asurian yesterday, Mm -hmm. and they limit all of their projects to being six weeks. So you you can't commit to something that's going to take you longer than that. And I think that discipline of um, trying to narrow something down to what's most essential about it and uh, and then getting it released and yeah. uh, getting it to where you can collect information on it because they're they're trying to run on a kind of let's get smarter process mm-hmm. of uh, mm-hmm. a lot of the things that we, that get debated um, nobody really knows that we don't have any information 
everybody's speculating and right. it turns into, you know, just um, a uh, just a debate. And yep. that <clears throat> excuse me. Um, you can the quicker you can get information to inform what you're doing, the better off you're going to be. Absolutely. So, um, how many of your of your clients are willing to pay for the infrastructure necessary to get them good user data? So, how many of them are using yeah. things like Segment, or they're implementing um, technologies that allow them to mm-hmm. um, get the heat maps and get the information necessary to understand what's happening? Yeah, I would say you know again without giving you a hard number, I would say too sure. few. You know, um, mm-hmm. this is something that you and I have collaborated on. Uh, when I think of product management discipline and, and what you do, mm-hmm. uh, there's not a ton of it. Uh, I would say in in the Southeast, in in Nashville, mm-hmm. and, and you know, I think it started obviously on the West Coast, and, and we have a, mm-hmm. an office in Denver, and there's a lot of sophisticated product management there where they're going to do mm-hmm. A/B testing and things like this. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times people still look at digital products as a utility. Uh, again, if it's just a, a something that automates a part of my business, well, there may not be a need to test that that particular tool. And we build plenty of those that you know mm-hmm. are, are what I would call bread and butter digital transformation. You take something that was being done on spreadsheets, business needs to scale, you automate an internal process, and, and great. That doesn't require that. Now, obviously, anything that's going direct to consumer or, or you know directly to their customers or clients should have that element to it, right? And I think it, there's an unwillingness a lot of times to invest in, you know, user feedback and interviews, um, test designs with people, that kind of thing. I mm-hmm. think there's always a pressure to get things out the door. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people think they can skip that step. Yeah. And let's just, again, we were talking about, well, let's get it out there and release it. You know, mm-hmm. that, doesn't ex- that doesn't mean that you don't prepare well. <laughs> you know, right. I think that idea of, um, yeah, we got to cut a tree down. Well, we should spend a few minutes sharpening the axe before we just start hacking away at this thing. But again, I think that's hard to do. If And again, if I'm a business owner and I have a, I have a problem in my business, I want it solved. You know? Right. I, you know, hopefully I've studied the problem at some level, but, but mostly I want to get something done and there's an action orientation that kind of can work against us sometimes when, when taking those initial steps. You know, I'm right. doing a lot of user research right now for a, a program I'm enrolled in through the NIH. And it's hard work. <laughs> There's a lot yeah. of you got to gather. There's a lot of synthesis you got to do. And then the conclusion, guess what? You may not like it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It may go against your initial hypothesis. Right. <laughs> so it, it's, um, I actually think there's a room for, um, we'll say, sensitivity to users, even in those bread and butter transformation projects. Mm-hmm. Sure. And the reason why is I, I think we forget that they're um, – the return on investment for a piece of software in, a, in an enterprise situation, there's two variables. One is the completeness of the feature set, and then yeah. the second one is the adoption. Mm-hmm. So you can have a very complete feature set, but if you have low adoption, you're going to have very low ROI. And conversely, if you have a very um, focused feature set but very high adoption, you can still manage to have good ROI. Right. So it's like – Doing fewer things well than lots of things poorly right. um, is a is a better attack. But I think to your point, there's we get separated. Uh, the the sponsors of software often get separated from the users of software. Like an enterprise software, the people who buy the software are never the people who use the software. Uh, yeah. So they're just they're just buying a story or an idea. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that people 
I'm, I'm guessing in your situation, people come to you with an idea that they assume, well, nobody's going to have any choice but to use what I'm saying. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, how yeah, do you educate? How do you educate them? Well, you know, it's interesting because I, you know, going back to the to teaching a little bit, I've taught a class for ten or eleven years now on change management, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you, one of the key principles is that participation builds commitment. So mm-hmm. if I have a product that I'm building for the new the, the nurses that work in my healthcare company. Well, I, I better involve the nurses. <laughs> I better have their input into what I'm building and understand their workflow and how they do workarounds and things like that today mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. I go and, and force a product down their throats, right? So mm-hmm. to me, um, just just sort of ignoring basic change management principles, um, and, and we as humans in general still aren't good at bringing mm-hmm. about the order of a new thing. And so I've tried to, mm-hmm. you, know, uh, you know, just in the past year or two, honestly, because I've been teaching this class a while, Say, how do I marry these good change management principles and actually take those to my clients first before they implement a new piece of software? Because, mm-hmm. you know, again, software can be built for a lot of reasons, particularly if it's internal facing. They're, they're looking for scalability, optimization. They're looking to get rid of manual processes, have better data integrity. Those are all good reasons. But if I'm the nurse, data integrity, what the heck does that mean to me? <laughs> you know? Um, right. Uh, and again, what we have to understand is anytime you put a brand new tool in front of somebody who's never used it, they're not going to be excited. Just to be honest, the, the initial reaction is that their morale and their productivity goes down. <laughs> and so realizing that that's normal, right? And then being able to sort of coach through that and, and say, hey, look, Hey, we're going to back off the workload, for instance, for the first couple of weeks that we implement this new software. So you guys have time to get used to it and comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Never heard a business owner say that, <laughs> you know, no. usually, hey, mm-hmm. we got to launch. We got to go. Now, you know, this software's yeah. late. Let's shove yeah. it in there and let's get running harder and faster than ever. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, people will come back and say, well, there's something I don't like about the software. There's a bug in it or something. And that may or may not be true, but what they're really reacting to is their uncomfortableness with the new tool, regardless of if it's super quality built software. We actually had this very, mm-hmm. very kind of conundrum with a client recently where we built this tool that basically took them from a very manual paper-based system to this tool that was internally focused, would allow them to do their scheduling and their payments on a daily basis. And again, internal utility tool, if you want to think about it that way, an internal mm-hmm. workflow tool. And uh, they got a lot of pushback the first couple of weeks. They kept saying, it's buggy. It doesn't work. Well, this kind of thing. And I would go to my team. I'd say, hey, this is the feedback I'm getting from the client. And they're like, well, we went through all their tickets and they're all just user issues. They're all just people mm-hmm. don't understand how the system works. You know, it's mm-hmm. working as intended, but they just, and I think it was, it was shoved into people's laps right before the holidays. And, uh, and, and again, there was a point of contention where we were with this client, where the clients point the finger at us and we're going, I think we built a quality product for you guys. And, and again, a little bit of an impasse. And, and I was happy to get, you know, we basically said to the client, if, if you're not happy with the work, we're, we're happy to transition it to somebody else, you know, and, and that's pretty rare for us. But we said that, and, and I got a note, this was just after the holidays where the client sent me a note. I remember I was getting in bed and you shouldn't check your email before you're getting in bed. But he said, on, upon further review, he went through, <laughs> on further review, he said, you know, um, mm-hmm. The product was built and, and your team was in it to win it from the beginning. You mm-hmm. really have built us a quality solution. We probably rushed this rollout and got a lot of negative feedback because of the way we sort of forced it on people. And I've mm-hmm. gone back through the issues and they're all kind of user related or, or lack of training and understanding. So mm-hmm. would you consider <laughs> continuing to work with us now yeah. that we have a little bit of time to do some introspection? And so that was 
you know, I mean, it's gratifying in some ways, but it's unfortunate that you have to get to that point. So it's like if we yeah. had change management and some basic principles around, hey, let's talk about what this rollout's going to look like and how it's going to affect your people. I think that could have gone a long way. I feel like it's the difficult engagements, the difficult clients are the ones where um, we learn the most about our business. The ones that go off without a hitch, it's like, oh, yeah, things are going well. Um, <laughs> but to your point, you know, like you never arrive at the you've never made it. The business doesn't stop. Um, and there, there's a lot of heartache in the situation like you described. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the, I mean, that's an enormously gratifying email to get, even if you're reading it in bed at night. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and I think I always say, you know, to our developers, because, um, you know, the, the biggest variable in our business is mm -hmm. we don't know much about the client and we don't know much about yeah. their sophistication their attitudes, their culture, you know, because we work nationwide mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so that's the biggest variable. And I, and I tell our developers, I can't guarantee you an easy project. I can't guarantee you an easy client all the time. And what we've noticed mm -hmm. over the years, to your point, is that, you know, the, the toughest project makes the tightest teams a lot of times. So it really is yeah. a really can be a, a foxhole kind of thing where our teams will really mm -hmm. get together. And on the other side of the project, mm -hmm. they'll say, yeah, remember those days? That, that was that was a pretty cool thing we did, you know, even mm -hmm. though it wasn't under maybe the best of circumstances, you know, that sort of thing. So, you know, uh, I, I promise, and, and I don't, you know, we, it's on our orientation deck. I don't tell people that I, I'm promising you attentionless developer Xanadu type environment. I'm promising that I'll try and get you worthwhile efforts that will grow your skill sets. And, and you're going to have to meet those challenges, right? And so, again, um, this growth mentality of, I've really been willing to push ourselves, push our technical skill sets, push our people management skill sets, I think is, is mm -hmm. part and parcel of, of why this place is attractive to folks. Uh, but, it, but it never, like I said, it's, it's never easy and you never sort of get to sit back and kick your heels up and say, oh, we're done, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so so um, you hire a lot of developers, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, how, talk to, to me about that process. How do you, what do you, what do you look for when you're hiring developers? Sure. Um, well, I mean, you know, I, you know, beyond, I'll, I'll just say beyond technical acumen. Uh, mm -hmm. And again, um, what I tell people on that note is that, you know, if I'm interviewing somebody, I say, you know, I'm not a developer. I'm going to assume that you can do what's on your resume. But just just so you're aware, when you come into this environment, it's nothing but engineers, right? Like I'm a, mm -hmm. you know, there's a few of, there's a few of me running around that don't code. Mm -hmm. You're going to be working mm -hmm. on projects with engineers with that team based ethos. And so the, the main thing is to be able to pull your weight and do what you say you can do, right? Technically, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when, we, when we try and explore people's technical acumen, it's more about uh, do they understand the technology they've been using? Do they understand what's maybe the adjacent technology or the competitive technology? And can they speak fluently to the trade-offs uh, between the two solutions, right? Because there is not a, a single best solution typically for, for most products and for most problems that we deal with. So technical mm -hmm. fluency, the ability to talk about it, I think is really important in our environment because one of the things that's different about 40AU is we want and we welcome all of our developers being client facing. And so client facing mm -hmm. means you have to be able to articulate your technical choices. And, and I tell our developers, you're going to work with deeply technical people. You're going to work with CTOs and you're going to work with computer science professors at universities who will look at your code and you've got to be able to talk to them about why you're doing things and understand the choices that you're making and the patterns that you're using. You're also going to work with the sweet Southern old lady who's never built software before and has mm -hmm. no idea what you're talking about. And so you're going to have mm -hmm. to be patient and explain things in a way, you know, that a lay person can understand and that, you know, that, that relates to their business and why you're doing things. And so 
that ability to sort of um, be able to to have this technical fluency and to be able to speak to it, regardless of the audience, is something that I think is a little unique about what we look for. Um, But Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, and and again, I think we look at um, people that um, look at this as a as a trade, as a craft or just passionate about it would probably be doing it even if they weren't getting paid kind of thing. And I know that's that's Mm -hmm. a little cliche. Um, you know, obviously they should get paid if they're good at it, but I think it's those people that really have a passionate curiosity and just really like the engineering aspects, that mm-hmm. internal drive is what's going to get them through maybe a tough project or a tough client, that kind of thing. Do you have like, um, one process I've seen in software hiring is you go through a series of tests. Um, do you guys do that kind of thing? Do you have them submit a uh, coding example and then read that and all that kind of thing? We typically don't. Uh, and, and again, I think one of the, the, the problems in the industry, if you will, is, um, you know, this long, lengthy hiring process. And, you know, you've got these code tests and you got these little trick quizzes that, you know, people have popularized in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, again, if all you want is technical proficiency and you're going to stick somebody in a closet, and just have them bang out code from tickets. That maybe that works for you, right? That's not our environment, and, and so we mm-hmm. find it less less useful in some ways. Uh, mm-hmm. We certainly, if we're on the fence about somebody, we'll say, "Hey, send us a code sample. Let's let's go through this together. Pull it up in the interview." And and I like to ask people, like, to show us a piece of code you're proud about, you know, and walk our engineers through it and why you made the choices that you did. And again, the passion, the the technical decision making, the communication will come out better. And like that example, then oh, you failed the quiz, you know. And and again, mm-hmm. I think. Um, you know, most of the interviewing almost, uh, you know, 100% is done remotely, uh, you know, these days. And, and everybody's got access to Google and chat GPT. And so if you mm-hmm. want to ask them technical quiz questions, you know, the, the, you, you know, that, that me, it's, it's, not, it's not really what you need. I need technical fluency in the moment. I need good decision making, mm-hmm. those kind of things. And so it's never been a big part of our repertoire to, you know, and again, mm-hmm. go through these lengthy coding tests or to give them homework, you know, yeah. that kind of stuff has just not been a big part of our process, you know. Um, so do you personally have a, a favorite software product? Uh, it's funny, you know, um, I'm, I'm actually pretty much a laggard when it comes to most technology. So I have my, mm-hmm. uh, I finally, my partner forced me to upgrade my, uh, my iPhone last year. I think I had an eight or so, and now I'm on a 13 mini. So, um, yeah. you know, I, being around it so much, I don't get too enamored with the tools. I mm-hmm. think me the fun part of the business is always the problem solving and the consulting and so uh what 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 gets me jazzed is learning a new business model meeting somebody that's in a different industry that i haven't explored before seeing how we can cross-pollinate ideas and and steal something from a technology that's from a completely different industry but bring that concept into one that's maybe not as far ahead of the curve Mm -hmm. so no i'd I'd say i'm definitely a laggard on the curve i got plenty of people that that are that are technology forward and Mm -hmm. you know i could i could certainly call on them and, and depend on their expertise there yeah so tell me about a business you learned about um, that was fascinating to you. So one of your clients was in an industry that you hadn't seen before. Yeah. What's something you learned? Well, I mean, just recently, um, again, I can probably get you a couple examples, but we, we started working with a client who is based out of Washington, D.C. Uh, it's a global uh, international nonprofit called RadAid. And they have been around for quite a while. They have a Johns Hopkins-led MD who, who you know, runs, runs the nonprofit. And they're in 44 countries delivering radiology, ultrasound, and, and equipment and, and training to underserved parts of the world, right? And so, well, what do they need a software company for? Well, you know, they're, they're like any other nonprofit. They have a, 
they have a, uh, you know, essentially a volunteer uh, portal, a workflow management tool that has 16,000 volunteers in their database and it's, it's aging out. And so they're asking for a technology solution. Do we move this thing? Do we build on it? Do we go to the next version? What does that look like? Right. So being able to just, again, just meeting fascinating people <laughs> and understanding mm-hmm. you know, what they're doing. Um, I always brag on one of our oldest clients you know, Noah Basketball, uh, we use this computer vision. We've, we've designed this system and built it from the ground up. It uses computer vision to track the arc of your shot when you're shooting a basketball. And so it can tell you in real time what the arc of your shot is. And, and 80% of the NBA teams use this as a, as a training tool for their athletes. Steph Curry is a huge proponent and a fan of this technology that we've built, right? So the idea of just being able to, again, something like computer vision that we learned about in the sports analytics industry, now we can bring it over to healthcare. Now we can bring it into different use cases, whether it be, you know, uh, helping people. Uh, we, we built a computer vision product several years ago for um, to, to watch pill counts. And so when you're talking about the opioid crisis, you want to be able to look, take a snapshot of that, that pill bottle and see how many pills have been consumed and whether or not they're ready for a refill and whether or not they're on dosage and things like that. So to me, um, yeah, there's just no end, honestly. Uh, you know, again, every week somebody calls me and, and it's like, I've never heard of this industry. I've never heard of your business, but how can we help? You know, and that's the, the variety I think is what really makes it compelling. That's really cool. I like the, um, taking, a, I'm assuming taking a picture of the pill bottle and it can estimate how many pills are in there. And that's really yep. cool. The old jelly bean game, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, so we, we talked a little bit about, uh, the, um, frustrations some people have when they work with software organizations what portion of those frustrations do you think are self-inflicted by the software developers themselves well again i think um one of the things i'll go back to is i i, I never blame the developers so what i'll go back to <laughs> this game of telephone that we play a lot mm-hmm. of times in creating software mm-hmm. is just part of the process and so let's just mm-hmm. say you know, an account executive or somebody who's serving customers identifies a need. They try and translate that to a project manager who tries to translate that to a BA. And then the BA is the only person who's allowed to actually talk to the devs. Mm-hmm. And so that's pretty much the predominant model that you see in, in a lot of cases. You know, mm-hmm. I'll call the BA, you could call them a product manager, you know. But mm-hmm. in many cases, you don't have fidelity from what was the original problem to how did, it, how did it get transformed by the game of telephone when it got to the devs? And then how did the devs understand it and build that into a, you know, ones and zeros, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that we've, we've narrowed in on that as probably one of the, the bigger issues. Um, you know, and so we've, our, our answer is to try, and, to try and cut out as many of the middlemen as possible. And again, put the developer right at the table with the people who actually have the problem, right? Mm-hmm. And in all cases, that, that doesn't work out. Um, I, think, I still think your discipline of product management, of having somebody who can speak tech, and speak mm-hmm. business <laughs> is really mm-hmm. that key crucial point. And so when we go to clients and they say, look, I already know what I want to build. I already got this thing. I already got the solution. I just need your team to plug in and build it. Mm-hmm. We're always going to question that. We're always going to say, well, okay, well then, okay. You know, as if I'm an investor, pitch it to me, <laughs> you know, yeah. what, what are you trying to build? Why? What's the business case? ROI? How are we going to, you know, how are we going to know we're getting mm-hmm. there? And, and again, I'll usually ask them. The second question is, if they can answer those is, do you have a product manager? Do you have a product person that can work with us on a day-to-day basis and really get down into the weeds mm-hmm. of how you take this vision that you've described and turn, turn it into an actual digital product, right? So, you know, I, I think that's where we see the most tension. And that's where I think we really try and work with our clients to set the right expectation. On the developer side, 
Um, you know, I think the biggest challenge for them a lot of times is speed versus quality. You know, how much time do I have to really make this? Could I make the perfect line of code? Yes. But it's just like we said about writing mm-hmm. a book. I would mm-hmm. want to write my paragraph, edit it, edit it, edit it, harden it, test it in front of people. And, and mm-hmm. you may not have time for that. You know, yeah. it, so when we can have a real honest conversation with a client we had recently who said, look, I will never say I don't want quality software. And if you say I did, I'll, I'll deny it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. But I have a deadline I need to hit. And so we want to build the best quality software we can within this time frame, knowing that we're going to come back and we're going to have to rework on some of this. We're going to throw some of it out. We're going to we're going to get feedback from that customer and, and some of it will shift. Right. So mm-hmm. being able to have that that really healthy conversation about what is that trade off between probably speed and quality is, I think, where the developers probably will struggle the most. And again, left to their own devices, I've told my teams, mm-hmm. too, you know, it may sound cool to have sort of an absentee business owner. You know, somebody who just lets you know and build, right? And like, that's right, right. But at some point, that that's not going to, you know, remain the case, right? That whoever right. that absentee business owner is is going to come back, and then what you're going to mm-hmm. show them isn't going to sync with what their vision or what their initial inclination was of that software. So, you know, the idea, obviously, of agile software and being in touch and and having mm-hmm. that day to day interaction and solving problems together is the best way to make software. It doesn't let the developers get too far into their heads from an engineering perspective of making the golden mm-hmm. toilet. And, mm-hmm. and you have to sort of have that conversation on, a, on an ongoing basis between speed and quality. And what are we really going for in this next iteration, this next sprint, this next phase of the product, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, um, I, I do think like no surprises is an important thing in any service business, uh, certainly in software, because yep. the risk of rework is so high. Yeah. Um, and um, so that, as you say, you don't want the absentee business owner. That's actually a really bad thing. Um, yeah. It's, um... you, you don't want a business owner who changes priorities or changes vision on an hourly basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but you really don't want someone who's gone um, because they're going to be disappointed. It's it's imp- almost impossible yeah. To please somebody where you really don't know what they're thinking. Absolutely. And again, I mean, we, because we work across so many industries, you yeah. know, we, we've got quite a bit of health, healthcare expertise at this point, because we've done a lot yeah. of healthcare projects being in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just built an app that, that sells cattle online, you know, that's cool. Not so much in the ag tech industry, right? So mm-hmm. we're always going to rely on our clients to bring some of that subject matter expertise to the table, right? Mm-hmm. But again, if you know, in the work you do, if you're doing user mm-hmm. research, you know, a, a consensus of one person is yeah, it's right. Always, <laughs> that's right. So, so pretty risky. Yeah, and again, I mean, just the idea mm-hmm. that that you know the the check writer, you know, the check writer, mm-hmm. the person who you know you're building the software for but you're really building it to be used by a consumer. <laughs> and so yeah. what is their flow and understanding how are they getting information and feedback from their customers? Mm-hmm. And is that an mm-hmm. ongoing basis or did they just have a theory that we're going to mm-hmm. test in a really expensive way if we build this product out, right? Yeah. That's, so, that's yeah. a really good point is that you're, you cannot avoid user testing. You can either do it before you do the software or it's going to happen at launch, but there will be user testing. But the most expo- expensive time to do it is at launch. I, I tell people the same thing about humility, Tom. So yeah, that's right. Ways to get it right. <laughs> you either kind of cultivate it, and you have a process mm-hmm. for it, or, or it'll come mm-hmm. smack you upside the head at some point. And right, you know, it it will it'll mm-hmm. eventually find you. <laughs> so <laughs> I like that a lot. So um, how do you want? I mean, you have kids, and um, 
your uh, what do you want them to understand about business? So when they they see dad's an entrepreneur, dad's um, you know busy. Being an entrepreneur yeah. is a pretty all-consuming job. Uh, what do you want them to learn about business? I think to me, I mean, you know, business, and, and again, the, even the business that I'm in, I've benefited from by by helping people and creating a great network of folks that mm-hmm. trust me. Right? That that is that's probably been the, the thing that I've done that's been most successful. So being able to, you know, not compromise your integrity, being able to say when you're wrong, being able to give grace to other people when they're wrong. You know, those are things that uh, aren't real popular in business books. But I think, you know, the long game is the way I look at it. The long game that I've played is I want to help people, uh, oftentimes with no reward. You know, I love helping people get jobs. I love connecting people to something they're passionate about because at some point I'm going to need help too. And, and you want to be able to, to have sort of that, that ability to, um, to call on people when you need them. And, uh, and so I think, you know, building for the long game and thinking about a network and a reputation is probably the most important thing to me um, of, you know, cause I think um, you're, you're, you know, at the end of the day, I, I, you know, uh, most of the software that we build is for other people. We can't even tell people that we build it, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. So I don't yeah. know that people are going to remember the software products and say, oh, 40 AU is a genius because they built, you know, th- th- that was their shining success. I think our success is the type of company we built, the culture we built, the the people and the, the families that we support and, and, you know, what we've done in the community. I mean, those are, you know, relationally, those are the things that I think will matter beyond, <laughs> you know, this sprint or certainly this product kind of thing. So I don't know. It's an interesting question because like I said, I, I don't think most kids really care about what their parents do, but you would, you would almost want to conduct business in a way to make your kids proud. You know, I, I think, yeah. you know, um, I think, uh, first of all, I, th- I think your objective is very honorable. Um, you know, we, I write a lot about virtue and, uh, virtue in business mm-hmm. and seeing, um, the product that you produce is being your business and the relationships that it creates and the families that it supports. And um, I commend that point of view. And I think that um, for me, my children want to understand my humanity. They want to know my struggle. They want to understand that um, I don't, it's the humility that you were talking about. I don't have the answers and my uh, relationship with them changes as they age. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, their relationship with me. I mean, there could be a time in life where they're taking care of me, and um, I hope that our relationship has um, evolved over uh, the course of our life that we have the strength and intimacy to support that. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because, I mean, I think uh, a lot of times when I was younger and my kids were younger, I think I, I just – I didn't want to talk about work at home. I didn't think it was good to bring work home. It's just, you know mm-hmm. – and, and I guess as my kids have gotten to be older, I think it's it's okay to say to them, hey, how, how was work today, Dad? Uh, it wasn't great. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's been a tough week, you know. Why? Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about it, you know, kind of thing. And just mm-hmm. to let mm-hmm. them see that, you know, mom and dad can struggle too, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I'm sure they have stuff going on. It's okay for them to come home and say, I, I didn't enjoy school today, you know. I, I, you know, whatever it was. And just to have a little more of an honest dialogue rather than sort of, you know, say, oh, everything's fine. Dad's dad's always fine. You know, kind of. <laughs> that's right. That's kind of my mo. I'm always good. You know? You're always good. Yeah. Well, there's, um, you know, it's it's like how do you be positive but honest? Mm-hmm. You know, how can you bring somebody in where you um, 
Like my my daughter's really good at this. She's an extremely positive person, but she will also tell me it's like, you know, this stuff is a pain. And um, I really admire her for that um, that transparency. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll say that uh, I was like like you when my kids were were younger. Um, I never wanted to bring the stress of my job into the home. Mm-hmm. That that was supposed to be a place where I was present and mm-hmm. not dumping on everybody. Yeah. Um, but as I've gotten older and I've started a business, uh, my children are really interested. They work for me now, and yeah. they're really interested in um, seeing how the struggle of of um, you know trying to create something. Yeah. My kids think that our office is a playground. So, you know, they, they like to come for the free food and the, the free drinks. And then you can mm-hmm. use the whiteboards and they think like, dad, you don't work hard. Why you <laughs> <laughs> it's a good perspective, you know? That's exactly right. Well, Andrew, it was so much fun talking to you today. Yeah. I really appreciate you taking some time and, um, uh, Look forward to talking to you soon. Yeah, no, I appreciate you. Thanks for doing this, and uh, thanks for being a good collaborator and colleague over the years. Like I said, we need we need more good product management uh, in this community, and it certainly makes our jobs easier when you guys are doing yours. And so, definitely appreciate you, and, and just thanks for having me on. Yeah. Fortune's Path Podcast is a production of Fortune's Path. We help technology businesses create products that generate monopoly profits. Fractional product management, product leadership coaching, competitive intelligence. Find your genius with Fortune's Path. Special thanks to Andrew Carr for being our guest. Music and editing of the Fortune's Path Podcast are by my son, Ted Noser. Look for the Fortune's Path book from Advantage Books on fortunespath.com. I'm Tom Noser. Thanks for listening, and I hope we meet along Fortune's Path.